Hey, welcome to Eastlake. Thank you for watching online. If you're watching uh, with us this morning or perhaps on replay via our app, we're so glad that you would take time out of a busy, busy week, I'm sure, uh, to spend it with us as we continue our series. And thanks for those of you who made it live as well today. Part three in the conclusion of our uh, My Next Right Step series, it's a series on autonomy. Um, and we said autonomy is unique because we have a tendency to like to be able to do what we want to do uh, with who we want to do it whenever we want to do it. And then we have one small caveat with that kind of as, kind of as we live autonomously, like as long as it doesn't like hurt or affect anybody else. But for the most part, we feel a fr- the freedom or we want the freedom or we want you to have the freedom, right? To be able to live in a way that you get to make the decisions of yourself. Because considering the alternative, somebody telling you what to do with your life, that's not really that great. So um, we, we love the fact that we live in America and it's free and all that kind of stuff. And there is a high level of autonomy within what we do. However, um, that comes with some dangers. It comes with some issues that I just think are, are kind of important. And as we have said, we are going to be a community that focuses on the way of Jesus and the teachings of Jesus and how to implement that in our life. Um, we get a chance to look at that through the lens of well, how does this affect our autonomy? How does living the way of Jesus affect how I do what I want to do with who I want to do it and when I want to do it, as long as it doesn't hurt uh, anybody else? And so we've, we've said in the, in the weeks leading up to this that there's uh, a few things that we have to take into consideration, especially when, in this scenario, we come up to the spot where we're like, we're not exactly sure what to do next. Like, what's my next right step? The bonus of, of, of having somebody tell you what to do is you never have to worry about what am I supposed to do next. They tell you what you're supposed to do next. But when you have the freedom of autonomy, nobody's there saying, well, here's what you should do next in terms of saving for you know, a house or this or that. You're just like, you're on your own. You get to make these decisions. As soon as you turn 18 or whatever, you have this thing where I don't know exactly. Nobody's telling me what to do. I have the freedom to be able to go, what should I do? And, and we, then we do these introspective self-evaluations about what's my next right step for whatever season of life I find myself currently in. And this is great because it's relevant to all of us, no matter what current season we're going in. We always struggle with this sense of loss of direction or purpose or whatever. What is my next right step? And there's a couple of qualifiers in there that are important um, that uh, are, are big there because we can always take steps, but how do we know that they're the right ones? Um, there's this, this issue of, uh, of how do I know what's right? Perhaps what's right for me, as we said in week one, is not to move forward with something, but to actually, actually step back and get off of this track that I'm currently on and on to another one. But that hurts because that feels like I'm going backwards in life and nobody likes to be going backwards in life. So how do we know what our next right step is? And the, uh, the, one of the options that is prevalent in our culture and often talked about uh, whether or not you watch The Bachelorette or not, just in life in general, is this idea of, well, you just got to listen to your heart, right? Listen to your heart. If you, if you want to know what your next right step is, you got to go with your gut on this, which can be solid advice some of the time. That's what we said. Because on Friday, some of you listened to your heart and you bought it. But next month, when Bank of America says, now you have to pay for it, you're going to be like, I wish I wouldn't have listened to my heart when I made those types of purchases. And I do think, because then, then it comes back to, okay, but if I listen to my heart, like I believe that God, there's like something in me that's God's spirit perhaps that kind of guides me as like a, a, a conscious type thing. And I'm supposed to listen to my conscience. But if you're religious, that can also be I'm, I'm being led by God's spirit or whatever. And I believe that those things can actually exist. And I think that that's how the spirit actually operates in the life of a believer. Um, however, I also think in addition to that, I do think I can make myself think that God is speaking to me through an inner voice. I think that I have this deceit part of me, and I think it kind of is human. So if you're human, and you are, um, you probably have something like this in you too. Like, we can trust ourselves to a point, but there's also something in the back of my mind go, is this really God speaking to me that I'm supposed to do this? Or is this me convincing myself 
as if this is God speaking, then I'm just getting what I want to do in the first place. That's a tough, like, caveat. That's a tough thing to overcome. How do you know when you're deceiving yourself? You wouldn't know because the deception is you. So then we said, all right, you should believe yourself to a point, but don't, you know, don't forget about this small thing. So then we said, well, the alternative to that, or one alternative, is to say, do this, but in, in certain cases, you really do should listen to the counsel of other people. You should, uh, if, if your heart is saying one thing, but like everybody you know and respect is saying another, then perhaps you would be like, maybe this is one of those moments where I am deceiving myself. So we said, there's a spot in which if you want to know what your next right step is, begin to ask around or talk, to, uh, talk around to friends or parents or maybe just friends. I mean, all those kinds of different avenues of people that I trust, which is a good idea, but we said, what kind of circle of friends are we talking about? This is, this is last week, if you, if you missed it. Um, am I talking about if, if my trusted counsel of advice that I listen to are people who need something from me, who will say whatever they need to, to get our, my love, affirmation, uh, or attention, or whatever, then that could be biased, and it could be jaded, and it could not be worth going for, right? I mean, depends on who you've surrounded yourself with to be able to say, I should listen to the counsel of others. And we're not really that good at discerning the motives of other people when it comes to how they stand uh, with us. And I don't always mean that in a negative way. How many of you remember watching some of like American Idol or the old talent shows and somebody comes on and in the, in the pre-interview thing, Simon Cowell's there and he's talking to him. He's like, so why are you here today? I'm here to sing to you, obviously, and, and make myself famous. Okay. Why do you think you should be on this show? Because my parents and my, and my siblings all say that I'm really, really good at singing, right? And it's in those moments, if you've watched the show enough, you go, oh man, everybody focus. This is going to be bad. Come here, come here, kids, come here. This is going to be horrible. And then they sing and you're like, and, and, and you, you listen to them, and, and then it's a, this big, giant joke, and then what does Simon Cowell know, and you don't know, I'm going to make it big anyways, and all that, all that stuff kind of takes place, and you realize, like, they were genuinely told by somebody that they loved and that thought had their trusted counsel and best interest at heart that they're really good at singing, and they're just not. They're just not, and it wasn't that they were, it wasn't that the parent um, was like, you know what, I'm going to go let my kid go on national television and make a fool of himself. It wasn't a negative motive. They had positive motives. It just wasn't truth in that scenario. Does that make sense? Like the motives aren't necessarily negative. They didn't need attention or whatever from them. They just like, they love their kid more than they love the average kid. And so they're biased against like, my kid's great and he's brilliant and he's beautiful and all this kind of stuff. And you're like, he's average. He's at best, right? And so there's, there's some constant bias in those scenarios, which also then factors into, can I then trust the counsel of my friends? So, so if we're, if we're, if we're you know, on one hand, we're like, trust your heart, but not like fully, right? And then, well, okay, then trust the counsel of your friends. Yeah, that's great when that is going well, but like, again, not fully. Like on both scenarios, it feels like as a kid, when you're trying to cross a creek and you're trying to get the best you're trying to figure out the best avenue to get across. And there's, all, there's rocks that you're trying to judge. Is this the best way to go or is this the best way to go? And both of them involve risks. And a lot of times you won't know if that is a solid move or a, a, I'm going to fall in the river um, until you set your foot on it. And so you're, you're, you're evaluating. You've done this. You've gone up to the side and you're like, mm, maybe not there. Mm, maybe not there. And you go and you, you're trying to find what's the best avenue to cross onto the other side. And the other side is like in this scenario, this analogy, my next right step. And perhaps listening to your heart is kind of a little shaky. It's going to involve a step of faith, 
A step of faith is involved in, you know, trusting the counsel of my friends. So what are, what's another alternative? What else can I do? What if we can't, so if we can't fully trust ourselves and we can't fully trust those we think that we trust, what are our options at this point? Besides your devilishly handsome pastor, of course, that's a great question to be able to ask. Who then can we trust to offer this sort of guidance with us? So today, uh, I want to talk about a scenario that Jesus shows up. And early on in the Jesus story, um, as mentioned, by the way, by all three of the synoptic gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all include this story. Mark's is really quick. Um, Matthew and Luke decide to spend a little bit uh, more time uh, talking about this. And this shows up uh, just after his baptism. So uh, we are about to go into Christmas time and, and welcome to the first um, Sunday of Advent, by the way. Our Advent series kicks off next week, but this is Advent. And in the Advent times, a lot of times this, the texts that are talked about in, in churches are, uh, you know, uh, Luke chapter two or, or, or Matthew, those early chapters in Matthew about the birth narratives of Jesus, right? So this is after the birth narratives and then Jesus goes and he gets baptized and he's about to go into public ministry, um, this is sandwiched between his baptism and his public ministry. And his public ministry would then take him all the way to the crucifixion, the ascension, and on. So we're, we're early on in this Jesus story before he's about to get famous. He really doesn't have a lot of followers at this point. He's, he hasn't done much other than uh, at least publicly that is written down uh, for us. And Jesus knew something. Uh, about this kind of scenario that he finds himself in. He wants to, he goes and it says he spends some time in the desert. We're going to look at Matthew's version. Luke's, again, as I said, is, is almost similar. The last two things are switched, but they're very, very, very close. But Jesus knew something that we know intuitively, though we struggle seeking out the isolation necessary to do something about it. And that is simply this, that there are certain things that can only be worked out alone, right? There are certain things that you will come up in life, and it's not I don't need advice from other people. There are times when nobody else's advice is any good. There are times when it becomes necessary to start, uh, start, stop acting, excuse me, and start like believing or thinking through some things. There are things in life, there are scenarios, there are events that go, you know what? I think I just need to get alone for a little bit and focus in on get away from the drive, get away from everything else and just be with myself for a little bit and be with my own thoughts in this way. And so Jesus is, is, is human and, and understands this as well. And so it says in Matthew chapter four, before he goes off and does his big thing, he goes into the desert, which then leads us to another issue, another problem, which is the chronological argument of this. And, and I say that because how many times in our lives um, do we go and go and go, and then we find ourselves almost burnt out to which we then say, I need a vacation. I need to be alone for a bit to refresh, to recharge, or to recover. I've done so much. I got, and then we go and we say, God, would you please, you know, or, or whatever, or maybe not like religious or whatever, but you, you understand like this is a pause. This is a time for refreshing. We feel like we've done so much. Now we're spent. And what we see here is kind of like this chronological problem of he hasn't gone and done those things and need refreshing. This time of isolation was part of his preparation. So yes, there are things that need to be worked out alone. And then off, as a kind of a takeaway for some of this, I, I think this is important in realizing that we can get in the scenario where we, we would say, I could or should or whatever spend time uh, in preparation in isolation. And the problem is that there's something in my brain and maybe in your brain that thinks if I go spend time doing nothing before I'm about to go do something, I could be spending that time getting stuff done. 
You know what I mean? Um, that feels like wasted time. If I'm about to go do something significant, I need every minute of the time. Like, I don't have time to go waste on just doing nothing and thinking through things and doing the isolation work that is required for this. That feels like a waste of time. And in that scenario, what we're telling God is, I, uh, I need you to come. I've done everything that I can do. I, I've exercised all of my agency. Now I need you to come refresh me, as opposed to, do I trust God enough to be able to work these things out? It, it, is this really in his hands or is this in my hands? I think it's something to think about, right? As we look at this story, and Jesus is about to go in the desert, he goes, he goes off and does the work by himself. And the only reason we know this story, by the way, is because he tells us about it. He becomes vulnerable in his own way. Um, and he does it before, which I think is like a testament for us to be like, you got something big coming up? You got some big decisions to be able to make? You're trying to figure out your next right step? And you think I can be productive? I can't waste any time doing that. I can't waste any time in prayer or contemplation or thinking or reflection or anything like that. I, I would say that sometimes there's some work that's done there and it involves kind of uh, ultimate allegiance or who's in control. Is it me or is it, is it God? In fact, anyways, that's just a throw out there. That's a freebie. That's no cost to you today. Anyways, Matthew chapter 4 um, says this in the text. Jesus, then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, which immediately should like lift a, a few red flags. Like, what are these? How does this work? Like, two buddies just hanging out? Like, I thought that they were, I thought that they were kind of uh, opposites. I, I didn't think that they were frat buddies uh, attempting to do this. What are they, challenging each other a game of truth and dare? Or how does this work, right? Uh, and I think it's interesting to, uh, for a few pieces into this, um, one is this word tempted tends to be all negative in kind of our sort of language. It has a, um, this week you sat uh, around a table and you had already eaten your max calories that you should have eaten, and then you were tempted to eat uh, I don't know, the bread pudding or the whatever, and you did it, right? And there's like a temptation, I know I shouldn't, but I'm, I'm going to do it anyways, right? And we kind of give ourselves the excuse because it's Thanksgiving or whatever. I get this. Um, we find, we, we use the word tempted when it's like, I was tempted to click this or watch this or eat this or to do something again, I know I shouldn't do. In this scenario, it involves more, that word is used for a, not a attempt to do something negative, as opposed to a testing to uh, refine things. A testing that is involved with, like, if you were a company and you were about to take a product to the market, you would want to run some tests on it to make sure it stood up to the, you know, everyday abuse or its durability or consistency or usefulness. Um, and so in this scenario, what we call a temptation isn't meant to make us sin. He wasn't being tempted to be like, see if you could sin here. Um, it was meant to be able to enable us to like sort of conquer this. sin. I think this is important for us too. Like, I think there are verses that show up in scripture about how God tested Abraham or God, like we have the sense of like God tempting us or we, we feel tempted in this scenario. And it's not a temptation towards sin. It's a, it, it's refining the strength to be able to overcome. It's not meant to make us bad. It's meant to make us um, good. Now, I also think that this is important to uh, consider in this. He's about to go into these conversations with um, uh, the devil, and uh, there's going to be three temptations total, and they take place at different things. And it says he was whisked away and taken to the top of a mountain uh, or a temple, and then he was whisked away and taken to the top of a, a mountain, and then those are reversed in, in Matthew and Luke. But anyways, it's it's... It's there, and there's either like this like 
like they dissolve kind of like Star Trek and then they reappear somewhere else, um, which could actually, that could be uh, the truth. That could be like historically accurate for this. Um, the other piece that I, I think is important for what it's worth, I, I think that this was probably um, a mental struggle and a mental battle, which does not diminish the significance of this in any way. In fact, and it doesn't make it any less real as as people who have gone through mental struggles and anguish can attest, just because it's not physically tangible in front of you and I can touch it and feel it does not mean that this struggle is not real, right? Um, I think as this kind of takes place, what we realize that we are perhaps more vulnerable in our inmost thoughts and desires. And this text, uh, for a couple of reasons, um, is important for us to realize some of the temptations are not just external, physical, but these mind games that we have to like work through. And again, how do we know that this story took place? Um, we only know this because Jesus told somebody about this who then wrote it down and included it in their text. Matthew and Luke both wrote it, which means it was probably common knowledge amongst the disciples because they did their research on this kind of stuff and decided to include this. So Jesus felt important. Jesus felt like this was important enough. If you're going to be one of my followers, you need to know that before I went out and did public ministry, I took some time of preparation. And in this, I struggled with the mental battles that go along with doubt and frustration and temptation and all of these things. That I, I've done this. How do we know this? It, it's Jesus telling his own spiritual biography. He does this uh, also in, in the Garden of Gethsemane, right before he's uh, um, uh, arrested and crucified. He, he prays these prayers. How do we know that these prayers, how do we know the content of these prayers? They show up later on in, in all, all of the Gospels. Um, because he specifically says, or it's specifically noted, Jesus went off by himself to pray, and yet we have a recorded prayer of him saying, um, if this... If there's any option, let this cup be taken from me. If there's any other way out of this, but if not, then thy will be done. So this struggle of pain and adaption and what do I do with this, um, a, very, a very human side of Jesus is made known, and yet there were no disciples probably within audible distance of him. So how do we know that this took place? Jesus then comes back. And at some point probably tells his disciples, listen, while I was praying, this is what I prayed about. Like that I'm, I'm, and he's being transparent with his own disciples. Like I'm struggling with this. I just need you guys to know, like, I know that you followed me around. And I've done some pretty cool things. And, and I, I probably am up here in terms of moral authority for you and, and how you respect. And you probably have these high um, perspectives of my abilities and I just want to present you with a little bit of my weaknesses as well to show you that this is something that I struggle with as well, so that you know that when you're going through some of these similar struggles, you're not like, what's wrong with me? Why am I struggling like this? Why am I not able to mentally get past some of these things? And then to, and to think in those scenarios, I'm not good enough for Jesus to have, I mean, like Jesus would never struggle with this and I'm supposed to be like that. So what, what I'm, I'm, I'm so much less than, and then we focus in on ourselves and it becomes this like cave that kind of gets, gets closed in. I mean, I think this story is so important because Jesus opens himself up to this vulnerability and says, listen, these were temptations that I went through as well. This is a struggle that I had. This is, 
part of human existence. And if, I'm, if, if God really came down to be human incarnate and show us and be one of us to then lead us to full redemption, this is an important part of the story, which is why I think this story is so incredibly important. So three tests. The first is simply this, uh, stones to bread. Matthew chapter four, verse three, the tempter came to him. The tempter, by the way, the devil shows up. It's not a capital D. It's not a name of a person in this scenario. It's basically an accuser. An accuser comes up. The tempter comes up. This shows up and over again. That doesn't mean that I don't think that there's a devil. I just think that um, a lot of times in this scenario, especially with the testing, something comes along to accuse, right? Or um, in, in scenarios of, of kind of future redemption, there's like this scenario of, uh, of a devil being an accuser. Anyways, the accuser, the tempter comes to him and he says, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And there's, there's a couple of things in play here. Um, in this geographical location, there's a lot of stones that looked in the same size and, and whatever of bread. And it says that he's been out here for 40 days and 40 nights without anything to eat. Imagine those scenarios. Probably everything starts to look like food, right? Um, I don't know about you, but I tried to save up for Thanksgiving. I have to like plan ahead. I have to like not eat so that I can eat. That's what I tell myself anyways. And the problem is, it's a, it's a very tricky timing. And blood sugar's involved in this, and it's all, all over the place. But I thought we were eating at 2 p.m. And then my parents showed up, and there were things that were uncooked, which means we weren't going to eat until closer to like 3 p.m. And from 2 to 3, there were a lot of things that started looking like food in my house. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? All right, here we go. Two options at play here. One, to use his powers and gifts for selfish reasons, to address a felt need. And in this scenario, if you had those kind of gifts and you had those kind of resources, who could blame somebody like him for doing what he would need to do to meet his needs, right? Because this is what we do too. We look at people and we're like, they drive this car, they live in this house. Yeah, well, if they got the resources, like how can I, I mean, I can't blame them for that, right? In this scenario, if he's got the resources, who can blame him for looking like this? But the second option at play is, I think this is a temptation to do something to almost, in a sense, bribe people to follow him. Like he's realizing I could do this. And one sure way to draw a crowd, by the way, is to feed them, right? If, you are, if you're a parent of a high school kid, right? And the, and the boys all come over to the house and you begin to feed them and you make them little like the pizza pocket things or whatever. And you, you're the mom, you become known. I'm a high school kid once, right? You become known as the house where I can get food. Listen, I will come over to your house a lot. That's just, you feed the seagulls, they stick around, right? That's what's at play here. He's realizing the temptation here is if I am trying to gather a crowd to hear about a new way of doing life, one sure way to get a crowd is to continue to feed and do these, you know, to, to meet needs in their life. And as we'll see in other scenarios, the feeding of the 4,000, the feeding of the 5,000, which I think are two different stories, he actually does something like this at play. There's, there's, there's something going on with all of this. And people respond positively when you give them things. This may be why you came back to Eastlake for the second time once. You're like, they watched my kids for an hour. We're not doing that right now, but they gave me coffee. Like, there are certain met needs that result in me kind of doing some things. You have friends who aren't the easiest to converse with, but dang, they're good cooks. And when they invite you over, you say, I think I can put up with that conversation for an hour to get a bite of that food. You know what I mean? You think in that way. We think economically, that's fine. And in this scenario too, there could be a justification for it based on biblical precedents. Did not God provide manna for the wanderers in the wilderness? 
Did not God call Israel out of Egypt and along the way fed them every morning with this sort of thing? Like there is a scenario in which Jesus could say, I want to do this and I'll find biblical precedents to be able to justify why I need to do this, which is again, is this self-deception piece in play, which could work. Did not the prophetic images of a coming kingdom include visions of an overabundance of food? Isaiah chapter 49, verse 10, this forward-looking like new kingdom someday when everything's right, when God's shalom is perfect in this world, here's what we'll find. A group of people, they will not hunger nor thirst, nor will the desert heat nor the sun beat down on them. Like they're going to be fine. There's going to be a day when everything will be taken care of with this. If Jesus had wished to give people bread, he could have just produced Totally enough justification for it. But the problem, again, is twofold. One, bribing, pe- bribing people is short-term solution. It really doesn't work. Uh, per- persuading people to follow him for what they could get out of it doesn't work when ultimately at the end, what you have to offer them is a cross, right? When Jesus later on would say, come, b- come to me, follow me, bid yourself to come and die, and here's a cross. And you, you will, b- what it means to follow me is you'll carry on this burden for others and, and have to think less of yourself for the rest of your life. That doesn't sell well when you've, you know, bait and switch them into, come, I've got free bread, and it's really, really good, and you're probably starving. And then they're there, and then you switch it on them. That doesn't work. Number two, it only deals with surface issues. Yes, why are they hungry? In this scenario specifically of these like 4,000, 5,000 people or whatever, why are they hungry? Hungry is, hunger is a symptom, but what is the disease? Is it because of their own foolishness or carelessness or poor decision-making? Why are people hungry? Did they spend their money elsewhere? Did they live frivolously somewhere else? Did they, did they make poor decisions and not show up for work? What's going on? Why are these people, why do they not have the resources? Or is it because there's some, some who possess too much while others possess Um, too little. So Jesus then, in response to this first test, gives an answer, an answer which we'll come back to at the end. We're going to jump to test number two. Test number two, it says he's whisked away. Verse five, the devil took him to the holy city, Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, jump, for it is written. Just a quick side note, as a response to the first test, he quotes scripture in Old Testament passage. So this tempter goes, all right, you like Old Testament scripture? We can do that. You should jump, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jump, because if you really are truly the son of God, you won't die. Nothing will happen to you. And think about how people will be so impressed. No doubt people would, start, would be startled into following somebody who survived a fall like that. You jump and you don't die, you're going to get some followers. What do you want? You want followers? You want fame and fortune? You want people gathering around to hear your stories? You start doing feats of strength like that, you will have a following. People will listen to you. And according to Jewish tradition, this thing had been attempted before to catastrophic results, right? Imagine somebody going, I will prove to you that I am the Messiah that we've all been waiting for. And then about five minutes later, you go, that wasn't him, clearly. There's a twofold problem with this scenario of this temptation, this response to this temptation. Number one, those who seek to attract people to them by the offer of sensational acts have adopted a way in which there is literally no future. And we know this because our appetite for the supernatural, our appetite for the sensational just kind of grows. The more we eat, the more we get hungry. The more we see, the more we want more. We clap, 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 clap for the current scenario, and then we say, more, 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 give us more. 
which is why you've, you've watched like somebody, it's always a danger to know one magic trick, right? You do one magic trick and everybody's like, ooh, you're so good, let's have another. And you're like, oh, that's the only one I know. Ooh, you're a terrible magician, right? We want more as soon as we get it. He knows that if I do this one sensational act, yeah, it'll impress. It might draw a crowd. But then they're going to say, what if he jumped from here? What if, what if he jumped from here, right? And then all of a sudden, it's just this circus act. Number two, he, uh, in his answer, it would talk about how God's rescuing power is not something to be played and experimented with. It is something to be quietly trusted in everyday life. You say um, to do this magnificent thing because, you know, we can trust that God's rescuing power will come for us. And Jesus' response, he knows this. He goes, yeah, but there's like a rescuing presence of, of God in our life that can be lived out in the everyday thing too. It's not just in the crazy uh, risk-taking factor. So uh, once again, an answer to a test is provided. We'll get back to that in just one second. Number three, the third and final test is simply this, to compromise. Matthew chapter four, verse eight and nine says, again, the devil, the accuser, took him to a very high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I'll give to you. Questions of how, what kind of authority do you have to give this to him? doesn't matter. He said, if you'll bow, if you'll do one thing, you want, you want the followers of the world, I'll give them to you. If you'll do this one thing, if you'll bow down and worship me. It's really simple. You, don't have to, you can avoid the pain of the cross if you'll just make one small concession, one small compromise. Don't be so demanding. Wink just a little at evil and questionable things and people will follow you in droves. You keep holding on to these high standards, people are gonna be turned away. So here's, a, here's an option. Become a little bit like the world. Become just a little bit like wink at evil, be okay with a little bit of whatever, and you'll be fine. Come to terms with the world instead of uncompromisingly presenting God's demands to it. And once again, he responds with a verse and moves forward. And a summary, to summarize all of these three tests as we kind of figure out what this means for my next right step. He decided this. He decided that he must never bribe people into following him. He decided that the sensational way wasn't for him. And he decided that there could be no compromise in the message he preached and the faith that he demanded. He knew these decisions inevitably meant a cross, but the cross to him also meant ultimate victory. He knew that my next right step and the reason why I came in the first place is so clear and it's so critically important and I cannot afford to be sidetracked with these sort of things. So now I want to read to you the actual responses that he said to this tempter when he was presented to turn stones into bread or defy gravity uh, or compromise his, his mission. In response to the first test, the stones to bread, Jesus answered, verse 4, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In response to the second test, which was to defy death, Jesus answered him, it's also written, don't put the Lord your God to the test. In response to the third compromise, or the third test, which was compromise, Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. I say that because as he's trying to figure out and discern his next right step, he didn't listen and rely on an internal voice, although he could have, he's Jesus. Like we would have not, given him any grief for being like, I've got this new, in fact, we probably almost come to expect that from somebody like Jesus, like this new way of thinking of things or this new perspective or this new, like his such high standards or, or like he, he poses the question back and it's way smarter. He like gets him, you know what I mean? Or something like that. He could have done that. He could have listened to external influences. Instead, he quotes from agreed upon historical tradition. He reaches back into what 
most, you know, all of the religious people had held to be sacred or religious texts, words that had been handed down through the historical tradition that the people had felt like God spoke these words to us. He reaches back off mostly into Deuteronomy and this teaching of these Israelites and this, this way of, of being human again after coming out of systemic slavery for 400 years. And he reaches back and he pulls out, a, 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 in our terminology, a Bible verse. He, he's presented with a temptation and he relies not on an internal voice or external people or counsel or whatever. He pulls out, he looks backwards to look forward. He reaches back and he pulls out a Bible verse. And, and I say Bible verse and that's, I know that that is um, like what you expect in a church, right? So I wanted to clarify that I, I think what it is is the accepted, agreed upon tradition of religion had said that this was holy text that God wanted to know. Um, that is exactly what we have a, as well. Like this, we know we call this our Bible, but you know, it didn't float down to us and be like, God opened up the heavens one day and said, this is Bible. Like, listen to it and read this, right? This came about over a succession of hundreds and hundreds of years of a church community trying to interpret what's important to learn and know what's, what's critical about what God has said about life. And, and, and they've said, and they, they selected some and they didn't select others, right? And, and based, if you grew up Catholic, your Bible maybe had more things that were in the accepted category, or at least, um, uh, or at least that's like apocryphal text or something that's like, well, these are good, but not quite Bible, but they're close. Or if you grew up LDS, there's like, these are good, but there's also this, right? This is from a historical standpoint, the agreed upon message of God to his people that we feel like can be relied upon. So Jesus in this scenario didn't go with his gut wisdom, didn't go with the counsel of others. He went back, he looked back to look forward and he said, this is what is truth. This looks back. This looks like the safest way to cross the creek. This looked like the rock that is most steady in the water. I could go this way and I could go this way but ultimately, my next right step is determined by what I'm able to, what this says about me. What has been said about me is more valid than what I say about myself and what others say about me. That's the big giant takeaway for this entire series. I think you should live your life in, 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 in discerning kind of what's, what's next and, and what do I do. For sure, there's lots of things at play, but I don't want you to ever forget that what has been said about me, what has been said about you, is in, specifically in this thing, is more valid, more valid than what I say to myself in my own mind and what others say about me. So then the question becomes is, well, what does this have to say about me? And that is why we gather together every single Sunday and talk about the way of Jesus. I can't summarize that for you. I do that 52 weeks a year with you together. And we interpret what this means, especially living in our modern day age when this was written so long ago. But that's what we're trying to discern. And, and this is the commitment level. What's my next right step? Well, here's what I know. The safest way to cross the brook, the river, the safest way to get to the other side is to trust that what is said about me is more valid than what I say about myself. And the skeptic's response to this, by the way, if you're watching this, you're not religious, you'd be like, yes, but golly, this book is old and there's written by so many different authors and there's lots of different flaws. And, and you know, this could be biased by um, people trying to kind of keep something alive that had 
you know, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, but they didn't want to lose their religion, so they kept this story going. It requires a level of faith to believe this is true or in the category of truth or whatever. To believe that this has the authority to say that, I mean, that's going to take a jump. That's going to take a leap. I get it. The point in this series is that no matter where we choose to cross the creek, there's always going to be a step of faith. No matter where you choose to cross, faith is involved the entire way. Is there faith in believing that this is true for me? Yes, of course. But when you choose to trust in yourself, don't lie to yourself and think that there's no faith in that, that there's no trust, that there's no leap of faith in there. There's a huge leap of faith. What if I'm deceiving myself? When you choose to trust and listen to the counsel of others, there's a huge, because I don't know what their motives are, and it might not even be negative. They might be positive. They might really genuinely, truly love me, but they're so biased in favor of me that the truth is not really known to them. And so there's a, there's a leap of faith there. And yeah, there's a leap of faith here, but there's a leap of faith everywhere involved. And I'm just saying, listen, if you're a Christian, right, then your option is to follow in the footsteps of Jesus who said, my best path forward is to look back to look at what this has to say about me and then let that affect and filter through. Now, if you're not a Christian, you get to decide of these three, which one makes the most sense to you in each scenario. As a Christian, this is kind of the, the way forward with this. So my next right step, your next right step has to include, must include what this says about me as the best avenue to begin. It's gonna require a leap of faith, a, a trust, you know, whatever, all of that. But that's just true in life, man. So may we be the type of people who, as we're going through life, operate in many different avenues and and realms and and things, but never lose sight of the core and the the centrality, the the sturdiness, the reliability, the durability of what this has to say about us moving forward. Let's pray. Father, our prayer is no matter if we're going through like a a scenario right now in our life where we're trying to discern next steps or this is just a good thing in the tool belt or whatever, but I, I pray that in those moments when it's not like maybe an everyday decision, but there's, some, there, there's those moments where we're like, we know that what we're about to do, what we're about to say, where we're about to move, what job we're about to take, whether we keep fighting for this marriage or let it go or whatever, like there are, there are decisions that weigh more than other decisions in life. And especially when it comes to those, uh, may we, and, and all of the self-doubt that comes along with those and feelings of self-worth that comes along with the consequences of those, those decisions, May we believe in the sturdiness of your word as the tradition of, our, of the church, the capital C church, has gathered throughout the years about what that says about us, that we are truly loved more than we could ever understand, that we are far worse than we could ever imagine, but yet far more loved than we could ever understand. May that reflect, uh, may that uh, center us, may that be the core upon which we stand. Give us the wisdom to know what that looks like and the courage to do something about it in your name. Amen.